Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Peter Coles from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Cardiff University will talk about the large-scale structure of the universe and the ideas that physicists are weaving together to explain how it came to be the way it is. Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the annual university William Herschel lecture. Uh, we have two major lectures in a year. Uh, one is around the anniversary date of um, William Herschel's discovery of the planet Uranus, which is, was in March of 1781. Uh, and uh, we have a November one. The November one is kindly um, hosted in many ways by the, by the University of Bath. Uh, and uh, we are delighted about this arrangement. Uh, perhaps I should introduce myself. I'm, Peter Ford, I'm the chairman of the uh, William Herschel Society, the current chairman. Um, I used to work in the physics department at the University of Bath until almost exactly two and a half years ago when they put me out to graze. And uh, I must say, I've enjoyed retirement. Uh, we are very happy today to have uh, today's speaker, uh, as you can see, Professor. Peter Coles from the Department of Astrophysics of the uh, University of Wales at Cardiff. Uh, Peter is a great authority on many aspects of cosmology and is a very interesting blogger and uh, lecturer. Uh, we heard a lecture by him recently at the uh, University of Cambridge uh, to mark the 400th anniversary of the Galileo Telescope, and almost straight from that, we decided to invite him back. So without any more ado, could I invite Peter? Very nice to see you um, in England, and we'd be delighted to meet you. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for your warm... Welcome. It's nice to see so many people here on a, a Thursday night instead of being out enjoying yourselves. Uh, what I thought I'd do, I mean, the title of this talk is The Cosmic Web, and I thought I, the, the meaning of this strange phrase, cosmic web, should become clear as the talk evolves. So I won't try to explain it kind of at the start. I'll try and make it clear as I go through. But I thought it would be good, since this uh, uh, talk is jointly organized with the... Uh, by the university and the William Herschel Society, I'd just spend a minute talking about something that I'm not going to talk about, which is just to advertise the Herschel Telescope, which is, of course, based on this space satellite. It was launched in May this year together with another satellite called Planck, which I'm going to be talking about right at the end of this talk. And Herschel... Uh, is already start, starting to send back data. We're getting the data at Cardiff. Cardiff actually built one of the major instruments, or played a leading role in building one of the instruments on Herschel. It's an infrared space telescope with a three-and-a-half-meter mirror on it. It's a very powerful telescope, and it'll be able to unveil uh, secrets of the distant universe um, in a way that we just can't do from the ground. So over the next year or two, there'll be fantastic results coming from Herschel. But it's all, at the moment, control, the press policy is strictly controlled, so I can't talk about Herschel. I would love to, but i just say that over the next year or two, you're going to see some amazing things from Herschel. So that's what I'm not going to talk about. Um, maybe in, you can have another lecture in a year or two's time about results from Herschel. And... Uh, I'm going to talk about cosmology, and I thought I'd start by, uh, because this is a very mixed audience, by uh, explaining what cosmology is, or try to. Um, now, if you cast your minds back about 10 years, you will uh, probably remember that there was a total eclipse of the sun that was supposed to be visible from mainland UK. Uh, I actually saw it because I went to Alderney in the Channel Islands with the Royal Astronomical Society, and we actually saw it in a gap in the clouds. It was very beautiful. But you probably know that um, at the time of the eclipse, that Cornwall was supposed to be the best place to see it in England, 
So lots of people went there uh, to try to observe what was going on. And the locals didn't like this. And this is a a letter, uh, uh, um, an article from the Times, uh, uh, complaining about the influx of strange people who were going to watch the eclipse from Cornwall. Now, you won't be able to read it all, so I've blown up the relevant part, which is the bit in the red box for you to see here. And this explains what it is. Uh, So, uh, August the 11th was the date of the eclipse. At worst, Cornwall fears an invasion of six million visitors, causing water shortages, sewage lakes, and typhoid, as New Age travellers, cosmologists, (laughs) druids, and assorted pagans. So, that's what uh, the Times thinks of cosmologists. I did actually write a letter to the Times immediately after this. I saw this. complaining uh, that as a cosmologist, I thought this comparison was very offensive to Druids. (laughs) But uh, they didn't publish it. So, um, well, of course, cosmology isn't some kind of New Age stuff. It's actually, uh, at least relatively recently, become something which is not just uh, kind of uh, quasi-religious or or metaphysical or or even just a, a question of pure speculation, it's been absorbed into mainstream science in many ways over the last uh, 20 or 30 years even, as recently as that. So although looking at the heavens and wondering what's going on is one of the most ancient uh, ways we've, humans have had of occupying their minds, it's only recently become possible to understand uh, what is going on scientifically. So what cosmologist, cosmology is as a science is the study of the universe the whole shebang, considered as a single system. So it's not about looking at the bits and pieces that make up the universe, the stars, the galaxies, and so on, so much as actually understanding how the whole thing evolves, how it came into being, what it's going to do in the future, and so on. So it's, a very, it's very specific, but at the same time, very general. Okay? Now, just to give you some idea of scales, uh, this is the basic... To a cosmologist, things like this are kind of like atoms. So this is the the, the sort of smallest scale structure that a cosmologist would be interested in, really, Um, uh, at least in the present state of the universe. Do you think about the light stuff, a bit too much light pollution for easy observation? (laughs) I don't know how to do that, actually. um... Do you know how to do the lights on here? Is that a touchscreen thing? Down. Doesn't seem to be changing. Is that better? That's quite a bit better. I can understand your desire not to be able to see me particularly well. Uh, it also has the advantage that you can see these things. Um, so, this is a galaxy, so a spiral galaxy. We live in one of these, very similar to this one. This is Andromeda, which is the closest big spiral galaxy to the one that we live in. And it contains something like 100,000 million stars. Each one, you know, a bit like us, the star uh, that our planet is going around. And uh, 100,000 million stars in one galaxy, there are at least as many galaxies in our observable universe as there are stars in one of these galaxies. So there are at least 100,000 million galaxies, each of which has about 100,000 million stars in it. So the universe is a big place, the numbers are big, but that doesn't mean just because the numbers are big that we can't think about what's going on and try and understand the thing as a single system. So these are our building blocks, and uh, here we have our first glimpse of the cosmic web. Galaxies aren't things that come along as individual objects sprinkled around space uniformly, they actually live in structures. And the first inklings of this came with this map. Uh, well, there were inklings before it, but the first systematic survey of the whole sky uh, was done in the 19... Well, the plates were constructed in the 50s, but the actual construction of this map was done in the 1960s by two guys called Shane and Vertanen. And what they did is to count galaxies on sky survey plates by eye over many years. 
That was all he could do. Now we can do this very quickly by computer. But, so what you see here is the northern part of the sky with all the stars taken out. And everything you see here is a galaxy. And you see that the impression you get looking down on this is not that the galaxies are just dotted around randomly, but they form a kind of frothy structure. I always reminds me of looking down on a beer glass. I try not to think of that, otherwise I'll get a bit distracted. Um, but you'll see also that sprinkled among this general kind of foam, there are one or two very dense knots of galaxies. These are called rich clusters. And they contain uh, many hundreds of galaxies in a space, in a, a volume of space, where on average you'd expect only one or two to be there. They're real physical associations of galaxies, not just chance alignments. So the, the name that's given to this kind of frothy filamentary structure, which you see in that map only in projection on the sky, is now called the cosmic, it's called the cosmic web. That's what we mean by the physical cosmic web. These chains of galaxies stretch across the sky. They can be hundreds of millions of light years long. And they're actually the biggest things in the universe, the biggest physical structures that we know of in the universe. Okay? Now, we can actually now, this, this is a less dramatic-looking picture, but there's a lot more information in it. This fast-forward to about 1990. This is a part of a sky survey made by um, uh, the automatic plate measuring machine, which was designed and built in Cambridge, Steve Maddox et al. And there's about 2 million. Oh, I should have said, this... So this has about something like 800,000 galaxies in it, that picture. That's quite a lot, but it's a relatively nearby survey. This has about 2 million galaxies, but it's a much smaller part of the sky, and all the galaxy counting and the identification of the objects and so on is done by a computer with an automatics machine. And that's really changed the subject. We can actually count galaxies, identify them, measure their properties much more rapidly than we could when it was just a question of coming in at 9 o'clock in the morning putting a little square down on the plate and counting how many galaxies you could see. Okay? Now, that's all very well, but this impression that you get of sort of frothy structure is only what you see in projection on the sky. There's no information directly about the distances to the objects concerned. So the next stage of the argument, which start, the, the development of this subject, which started in about uh, the mid-'80s, was the business of actually mapping out the three-dimensional structure of the galaxy distribution. And remember, we're talking about huge scales, hundreds of millions of light years. Now, the way we do that, measuring, you probably know any of you who's interested in astronomy as an amateur or as a professional, that actually measuring distances to astronomical objects is extremely difficult because you haven't got rulers long enough. You can't actually go there and measure where they are. You have to use indirect geometrical arguments. Fortunately, we have a way of measuring distances relatively easy, easily, at least if they're very large distances. And this came from a discovery by this chap, Edwin Hubble, famous astronomer, and famous for his choice of strange clothing, as well as everything else. In fact, Hubble... Uh, was an American, uh, but he, he came to the UK uh, just around about the time of the end of the First World War on a, on a Rhodes Scholarship. And when he returned to America, he'd affected a British accent and liked to wear tweeds and smoke a pipe and stuff. And when he went home, they all, all the Americans thought he was a, a very weird person. And he, uh, but he was, uh, did make a number of very fundamental discoveries in cosmology, the first one being the discovery actually that the spiral nebulae, like Andromeda, which I just showed you, were actually other galaxies, like the one that we live in, and not just small things relatively nearby. It was him that really established the distance scale. But he discovered the, also the expansion of the universe in the form of this graph. This is, graph is almost as bad as the graphs that I used to plot when I was an undergraduate physics student. Uh, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, I should point out. Data is not really my thing. Um, but we, we do need it right, so, to do our job. So what this is, is what he, what he did was he, he found galaxies, nebulae as they were called in Hubble's time, and he worked out uh, as accurately as he could the distance of the nebulae, 
which you do by looking at the properties of stars and the nebulae. And he also measured their apparent speed. Now, uh, and he plotted one against the... I'll come back to how you measure speed in a minute. But basically, uh, you've got velocity up here in kilometers per second against distance along there. And this is Hubble's actual data from 19, the late 1920s. And the argument is that there's a straight line fit to that. That's Hubble's law. Uh, this is how you measure speed. Uh, the analogy which we'll use for it's good enough for this talk is with the Doppler effect. If you have a, a, a source of sound waves at a given pitch and that is moving towards you, you hear the, the waves with a higher pitch because the wavelength is shortened. If it's moving away, you hear things with a lower pitch because the wavelength is lengthened. That's the Doppler effect. Similar thing happens with light. If light is uh, a, a source of light radiation is moving fast towards you, you see the light bluer. If it's moving away from you, you see it redder. Now, what's, these are Hubble's actual pictures, and you see the galaxy. There's a nearby one at the top. You can tell it's nearby because it looks big. There's a distance one at the bottom. It's because it looks small. You can see that it's actually a similar object further away. And what he did was he split the light up into a spectrum, and you see uh, the spectrum is produced by all the stars in the galaxy, and the stars in the galaxy have little signatures, dark bands in the spectrum that are like a DNA fingerprint of the atoms in the stars that are producing the light. And the, pay attention to this doublet here. These are all on the same wavelength scale. This characteristic fingerprint of the stellar light is actually shifted to increasingly large wavelength for the more distant galaxies. So that's a, that's a sort of graphic ex explanation of it. Now, hopefully you weren't too impressed by that plot. I, wasn't, you know, I wouldn't have been all that impressed with that plot, but of course, we, that's graphically what it looks like. Basically, you are here, and the further things are away, the faster they seem to be moving away from you. Now, you might object to this uh, uh, as meaning something very strange about the universe, or indeed you, so it looks like you're so obnoxious that everything is trying to get away from you as quickly as it can. Uh, but I just do this thought experiment there that basically this looks like you're at rest and you're at the center of the universe and everything is rushing away from you. But with this expansion law, suppose you move to this galaxy and consider yourself to be at rest there, this galaxy would be moving away from you and everything else would also be moving away from you in exactly the same way. So everything is expanding about every point. Everyone can consider themselves to be the center of the universe, and they'd see the same thing. Right? So there's not a center, uh, really. Or let's put it another way. Everyone has the same right to think of themselves as the center of the universe, which maybe you, some of you probably do anyway. Um, I just wanted to show you this. This is actually not particularly new, but I like the graphic. Uh, this is Hubble's law. Just funny astronomers' units, doesn't really matter, but it's distance against velocity. And this is a continuation of Hubble's graph, and you'll see it actually is quite accurate. And all of Hubble's data would have fitted in this little black square here. So he was actually quite lucky, I think, uh, to have got it right. You could have fit a number of different laws to this. But actually, it's spot on. Hubble's law is very accurately obeyed. The more distant objects do... Uh, seem to be moving away with increasing velocity. Uh, and uh, we actually can measure the, the hard part of establishing uh, Hubble's law is actually measuring the distances. We're really limited by how accurately we can do that. And I, if I've got time, I'll come back to that in the end. So, right. If you believe Hubble's law, the velocity is proportional to the distance. There's a constant there which is difficult to measure until recently, but... Uh, uh, the, but basically, if you have the velocity proportional to the distance, if you use spectra and measure the redshifts of the spectra, you can get the distance. If you trust Hubble's law, measuring the spectrum is enough to tell you the distance of the galaxy. So this gives us our way of mapping the three-dimensional structure of the cosmic web. So this is the... If you pardon a little bit of autobiography, this was the first 
paper, this is from the first paper that I was given to read when I started my PhD in 1985, and it was by a paper by De Laperon, Geller, and Hooker from the Center for Astrophysics in Harvard. And what they did, what you have to imagine is that this is a, a very thin strip across the sky, and there's lots of galaxies in that thin strip. That's just for observational reasons. I won't go into the strategy for doing this. But each galaxy is identified, and a spectrum is taken. The spectrum gives you the redshift, and the redshift gives you a velocity. So now you take that strip and imagine the strip is across the sky like that. You are here, and this is your third dimension now. Radial distance, but it's plotted just as the velocity. 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 kilometers a second. So these are the faster moving objects, they're further away. And the nearby structures. And you now see that what you're seeing there is kind of a slice through the three-dimensional structure of the universe, and it also looks frothy. So, uh, in fact, it also looks like there's a person in there. That's, uh, if you've ever heard of the anthropic principle, that's probably what the man at the center of the universe. But you see these large empty regions, and the matter is extremely well organized. So this was, this was an extremely important breakthrough in 1985, but it was very hard work. It took years to get a few thousand galaxy redshifts this way, because what you had to do was take your telescope, point it to a galaxy, measure the spectrum, plot the velocity, move to the next galaxy, and so on. Com uh, automatic uh, measuring machines revolutionized this, because... Uh, Automatic measuring machines plus uh, multi-fiber optics. So basically, this is a blown-up version of this, a modern version of this old plot with about a quarter of a million galaxy redshifts on it. Uh, the original plot, which I just showed you, would have fitted in about here. So we go about six times deeper because the more sensitive uh, survey. But also, uh, the way this works is that you have a a telescope field with uh, lots of little fibers running off to the spectroscopes at the back. And you put one fiber on, on top of each of hundreds of galaxies, point the telescope once, and get 100 spectra simultaneously. So instead of having to move the telescope every time, you can actually run off many spectra for each field. And uh, that's made this kind of survey possible. It's an amazing thing. This was the Anglo-Australian two-degree field redshift survey. And you see that it is actually frothy. That, the visual appearance of this structure is very similar to the, to the projected two sky appearance that you got. So it's genuine three-dimensional structure. This is the cosmic web. Now, people always... I'm going to preempt one question here. People always ask, why are there no galaxies out here? Uh, well, that's just basically because you can only see... Uh, you can only measure the redshifts for galaxies that are bright enough for you to get a spectrum for them. And at the depth, far depths of the survey, you will only pick up the very brightest galaxies that are there. So you won't get all the galaxies as you go further out. The ones you do see trace the structure, but you miss a lot of galaxies. So it's not what's called a volume-limited survey. Uh, so that's the two-degree field. This is an even bigger survey called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is done on similar principle. And again, you see this uh, frothy, filamentary, very fascinating structure. The universe is not smooth. It's not featureless on large scales. Uh, not exactly. It has these structures. Yeah, and you can use your own vocabulary to describe what, these, uh, what that looks like to you. But I think the cosmic web is not an unreasonable phrase to use for this. It kind of looks like a web or a network or something like that. Okay, so that's part one of the cosmic web, is what the universe looks like. It looks actually incredibly rich tapestry of uh, filaments and voids and sheets and things. But there's, there's actually another side to the cosmic web, uh, which is in many ways more interesting. Uh, and that's the, the web of ideas that theorists have tried to spin together to explain why our universe actually looks like this. And, I, of course, I'm a theorist, so I'm going to sort of play up the 
excitement of actually trying to figure out what, why. Why should the universe look the way it does? Uh, and not something a lot simpler. Now, there are lots of ingredients in this cosmic web of ideas, and I won't be able to talk about all of them. It's only a, uh, it couldn't possibly... I'll touch on a few of these, but I couldn't uh, do them all justice. Uh, the basic idea that we have, though, is uh, a model for the evolution, the origins and evolution of the universe called the Big Bang, which is a phrase that most of you would probably have heard of, but I'm not sure how well you understand what it actually means. I know many people don't. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a rather glib uh, phrase to describe a complicated set of ideas. So anyway, here it is in the summary. I should have just... I really only need this slide. This is the whole universe. Uh, it would have been a rather dull talk if I'd just put this slide up and just talked about it and nothing else. So, so the, this is a, a nutshell... Uh, for the universe, we, starting with our universe now, we think the universe is about 14 billion years old, um, as far as we know. And I'll explain how some of these numbers come out as, as, the, as the rest of the talk goes on. But basically, it's all done backwards. Cosmology is all done uh, like archaeology. So we observe the universe now, and the, oh, the name of the game is to find out what it was like in the past. So it's, it's by archaeology or forensic science, not like an experimental science. It's different from other sciences because we don't have an ensemble of universes. We just have one, and we've got to try and figure out just from what we've got. That doesn't mean it's not a science. It just means it's a bit different from some of the other branches of physics. So we think as the universe is expanding and it's got all this stuff in it, galaxies and whatnot, as we turn the clock back... It's expanding. We think it was denser and denser and hotter and hotter in the past because it's been expanding. It must have been more uh, concentrated in the past. And eventually, uh, a long way back, almost the whole 13.7 billion years, the, the whole universe was hot enough and dense enough so that its material inside the universe had more or less the same properties as the surface layers of a star like our sun. So it's actually hot radiating and gl glowing like a, the surface of the, It's been quite a long time since I've seen the surface of our sun because uh, it's been cloudy for so long. But, uh, but that's the phase which we can actually observe. We can actually see the radiation from that phase. I'll talk about that later. Earlier on, we have theoretical ideas, but they're somewhat more difficult to test. Uh, inflation is one of them, and I'll touch on that as we go on. But I want to concentrate on the the sort of parts of the Big Bang Theory that are empirically tested. So, just credit where it's due, the two great heroes in the development of modern theoretical cosmology. You all know who this on the left is, but how many of you can name the chap on the right, who's really the father of the Big Bang Theory? Any offers? No, no. A little bit before Gamow. Right nationality. This guy is Alexander Friedman. Right? So, uh, round about the same time as Lemaitre, uh, but in Russia, he, he solved Einstein's equations of general relativity to produce the mathematical theory of a Big Bang universe. He did it on his own, essentially, in the middle of terrible circumstances. The siege of Petrograd was going on, and he was stuck inside of it. Uh, he died a few years later of typhus, I think, and his institute that he worked in was liquidated by Stalin. Um, and all my, uh, he, he published one paper, uh, which is so important that it's kind of... It's the whole of the Big Bang Theory. It's, that's such an important thing of 20th century science. It's, Tragic that Friedman never really saw the fruits of his labor. Um, Lemaitre is often credited with doing it first in the West because Western universities had more access to his writings. Uh, Friedman uh, published in a German journal, uh, and his work was kind of rediscovered later on. Uh, he's now given plenty of credit for it, but he's, uh, he should be a household name, I think. You can tell just by looking at him that he didn't have an easy life. This is not a well-fed person or well-clothed. 
But he's a great, uh, great hero of uh, 20th century science. So that's him. So actually, I don't want to go into general relativity too much, but I like the Big Bang theory in the context of Einstein's theory of general relativity because it gives, it's more or less unique example where general relativity actually makes something easier to understand than if you don't use general relativity. So classical physics makes this very complicated, but actually general relativity makes it rather simple, I think. So let's go back. Those of you who studied physics and have had to solve problems about Doppler shifts and so on, well, I actually realize it's actually quite difficult to do that because you have to with the right reference frame and what's the time for the things to travel and all these transformations and so on. Actually, in the Big Bang universe, it's best not to think about it as being a Doppler shift at all. The redshift is not best thought of like that. What is actually happening is that Einstein's theory of general relativity is sort of a theory of, of gravity, but it's really a, a theory of space and time and how space and time are dynamical things. They expand, they contract, they twist, they warp, they play the game. They're not just the stage on which you play the game. They're actually participants in cosmic evolution. If the universe is expanding and we look at a distant galaxy, then the light from that galaxy has to travel through the expanding space. It's actually, space has some sort of materiality to it in Einstein's theory. It stretches the light out as you expand through it, as you travel through it. So a little photon, a little packet of light with a short wavelength when it's emitted by the source, actually arrives into the telescope or your eye with a longer wavelength. So that's your redshift. It's just how much the universe has expanded while the light's been reaching you. Don't have to think about how fast the source is going or anything like that, or change frames from one frame to another. It's actually very simple. Okay? Uh, space is actually stretching. So in a sense... The, the galaxy is at rest, and it's, it's not feeling any forces on it, and it's just kind of sitting there. But basically, if you can think of it as being the space carrying the galaxies away from each other, and particularly away from us. So when we measure the redshift of a very distant galaxy, we're actually really measuring what's called the scale factor of the universe, how much smaller the universe was at the time that redshift uh, came out. Now, these, these surveys here are very local ones. You see the redshift is only 5%, 10%, something. So we're only looking back a little bit in time. So the universe is actually slightly compressed by about 10% or so, but not by a big deal. This survey, uh, I just put this in recently. Some of you may know that the Hubble Space Telescope got refurbished recently, about a month, two months ago. And one of the things they did was put a new camera in. And almost immediately, this favorite bit of sky was reanalyzed with the new extremely sens ridiculously sensitive camera. And uh, this is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. So this is a... The Hubble Space Telescope is a two-and-a-half-meter mirror. <coughs> and there is a camera on the back. So the aperture of this camera is about two-and-a-half meters. Okay. So imagine you're taking a photograph with an aperture this big, and you take a photograph. The exposure time might be a fraction of a second or something. You take a picture, right? So this image is taken with a camera with a two-and-a-half-meter aperture in space with an, with an exposure time of about 11 days. So all of this stuff here is incredibly faint. And some of the images in this galaxy have redshifts of 8, 9, or 10. So the light from those galaxies is coming out when the universe was a factor of 10 <coughs> compressed to what it is now. So actually seeing back to the very early universe when we do this. So you, it, it's not just geography anymore, it's history. You're actually seeing stuff that's... that's that these are galaxies that have probably just been born out here. Okay? So if you don't know what a... Uh, the way astronomers tend to measure time, 11 days, if you, I don't know if you've ever counted how many seconds there are in a year, it's about 30 million. So 11 days is about a million seconds. Okay? 
a million second exposure. That's quite a long time to hold the camera. Okay, so eventually what happens, of course, as you look further and further out in, uh, in space, you're seeing further and further back in time. So if you imagine you're in the center of the universe and the universe looked like this, uh, you would look out, the universe is, as far as we know, as you turn the clock back, just gets more and more concentrated without limit. Eventually, you'll reach a point where, so this is the universe getting more and more condensed as you, as you look at, that you'll reach a point where it looks like the universe has an edge. If it's existed only for a finite time, there won't be any further out because there wasn't any further back. Okay? So the universe, even if it's infinite, will look finite if it's only existed for a finite time. And this is where this edge, apparent edge of the universe, is where we can actually understand most of the Big Bang. Most of the evidence for the Big Bang comes from. So let me just move quickly on to this. Uh, the radiation from the edge of the universe, you probably, many of you will know, that it's called the cosmic microwave background. When it was emitted, the universe was actually as hot as the surface of a star, like the sun, a few thousand degrees. But it's traveled through the universe and been shifted into the red by a factor of about a thousand. So when we look at the microwave background, we're seeing the universe compressed by a factor of a thousand relative to what it is now. Uh, so we see it as three degrees Kelvin, but it was actually emitted at a few thousand Kelvin. So it's not optical light anymore, it's microwaves. And it was first detected by accident by these two guys, Penzias and Wilson, who got the Nobel Prize. Uh, this detection was 64, 65. They got the Nobel Prize in 78. Um, and uh, it's thermal radiation, which means that it has a very characteristic spectrum. It's, it's basically um, the, the, the kind of radiation that things give off when you heat them up. And we think this was produced when the universe was actually uh, at a redshift of 1,000 or thereabouts, so 1,000 times denser. Here's evidence, amazing curve. This is the energy versus wavelength of the measured in the microwave background. And the amazing thing about that curve is that the measurements from COBE and the theoretical curve are both plotted. So the black body spectrum and the data from COBE are absolutely indistinguishable to an accuracy of better than one part in 100,000. So it's actually difficult to manufacture a black body spectrum as good as this, the universe managed to do. So the argument is that if the universe has produced this spectrum, then it, it must, when it was created, the universe must have been thermal, in thermal equilibrium. So it was hot and dense. So I'm going to skip why the sun has an edge. You can think about that until the end of the talk if somebody wants to ask me why. So let me just go back to the sun. Remember that when, what I said was when you look around the, the far enough out into space, you're actually seeing back to a point where the universe was hot enough that uh, it was glowing like the surface layers of the sun. And we call that the cosmic photosphere. Uh, the sun has a photosphere of its all. That's where we see the, the color from the sun and where we see the light from. That's why the sun has an edge. It's because it has this photosphere. Inside the photosphere, inside the sun... It's basically opaque. Light can't get out very easily. When you get cool enough and sufficiently rarefied, light starts to travel from a visible... And that's what gives it a visible surface. The point of this question is that when you look at the sun, you tend to think that it actually has... It's like a solid body or something like that because it's got a very well-defined edge. But it's not solid. It's a ball of gas. It's not particularly dense either. Okay? So what you're actually seeing is this photosphere. That's the point where the material of the sun becomes transparent to light coming out of it. And the same thing's true of the universe. We have a cosmic photosphere. The difference is with the sun, we're on the outside looking in, and with the universe, we're on the inside looking out. So the cosmic photosphere is all around us. And the universe has been expanding, so we don't see it as optical light from the sun, but we see it as uh, infrared. Uh, far infrared or microwave radiation. But there's another analogy here which I'm going to push to breaking point, which is that there are funny astronomers 
called helioseismologists. I don't mean they're funny like they tell jokes all the time. I just mean it's a very specialised bit of astronomy. Um, and what they're trying to do is to understand what's going on inside the, stu- the sun by looking at the motion and oscillations of material on the solar surface. You can't go into the sun and poke around in it. You've got to actually see what's going on from the surface manifestation of it. And that's exactly what we're doing with cosmology with the microwave background. So the point is that the sun looks very uniform, constant temperature, but it actually has small ripples, perturbations, waves, oscillations going on in it. So does the microwave background. And these will tell us what's actually happening in the very early universe. So as far as Penzias and Wilson were concerned, at the top there, they couldn't measure any uh, structure in the microwave background. They just basically use three Kelvin, and it looks the same in all directions, apart from a bit of pollution from our own galaxy, which is that white smear in the middle. That's our own galactic disk, which emits rather annoyingly. Um, It'd be much easier to do microwave background observations if we didn't live in a galaxy. But uh, commuting would be rather difficult, I think. So uh, it took quite a long time until Kobe in the early 1990s to map the sky with sufficient resolution that you could start to see variations. This is the galactic plane which looks even more um, prominent in Kobe because it's more sensitive, so you see even more of the pollution than you would. But above and below, there are fluctuations. Kobe has a, was a telescope with about 10-degree resolution. That's even worse than my eyesight. So uh, it could only see the very broad brush structure. And then a few years ago, we had WMAP, which actually, again, you see the galactic plane. So that's the center of our galaxy in these coordinates. It's right in the middle of this picture. And and we're in here. Uh, We have to look through it. But at high and low galactic latitudes, basically, it's microwave background, and you see it's it's got noise in it. It's not uniform across the sky. It's got fluctuations. So this is a cleaned, heavily processed, and beautified version of the Kobe map uh, after subtracting out the galaxy and all the other forms of contamination, you'll see these are fluctuations in the temperature. They're very, very small in amplitude. The microwave background is about 3 degrees Kelvin and these fluctuations from place to place are about 30 micro Kelvins. So that's about one part in 100,000. And uh, so they're very small. In fact, that's smoother than a billiard ball, actually. It's more smooth than a billiard ball is. Uh, But these are important because they tell us what the uh, universe was doing when that light was last emitted. It wasn't exactly uniform. It was slightly fluctuating. So what causes these fluctuations? The answer, of course, is the Big Bang. You're seeing the Big Bang when you look at these fluctuations. What do I mean by that? Well, if I make a noise, and I hope I'm not going to destroy the sound system, if I do this, the reason why you hear a noise is that I send sound waves through the air in this room, and they're picked up by your ears, which, which oscillate, and tell your brain that there's a sound arrived. Those fluctuations, even for a very loud noise, are actually quite small. The variations in density and pressure in the air for, you, for an audible sound wave are actually very, very small. Uh, and one of the things... And, uh, but if there was a big bang, there had to be sound waves. Right? Now, what we're actually seeing here is a snapshot of the sound waves travelling through the universe at the time the light was emitted. Just in the same way as that you look at the surface layers of a sun, you see the sound waves traveling through the sun. The sun actually makes, it makes a lot of different kinds of noises, wheezing, grunting, ringing noises, as sound waves propagate through its interior. And the universe did the same thing. Kobe could only see the very long wavelength bass notes, which is what you see here, but WMAP fills in the rest. It's the high-frequency stuff. So we can play a lot of funny games. Um, We don't know exactly uh, what generated the sound waves, but we know they're there. We think it was probably to do with a very early universe process called inflation, which I won't have time to talk about, I don't think. Um, But those sound waves 
Uh, let me, well, here's a simulation of what the Big Bang actually sounded like. Um, you might have heard this before. But it's not really like a bang, and it's not really all that impressive. So I won't dwell on it too much, but... Uh, like a tube train or something. So that's basically the ambient noise that was going on as synthesized from measurements of the microwave background. Okay? So it's a, it's a rumble. You can actually work out how loud the Big Bang was from the amplitude of the fluctuations. And the answer is, it's actually not impressive, really. It's something like 120 decibels. Remember, the fluctuations are actually quite small. 10 to the minus 5 is not that great. It's quite loud. But a typical rock concert might get you up to 135 decibels or something like that. Of course, you can't hear these sound waves. They're far too long wavelength to actually hear them. But if you just scale everything to what, what the fluctuations would be for audible waves. So actually, the Big Bang is, wasn't all that big. You know, actually, it was kind of, kind of loud, like a pneumatic drill or something. Not that great. If I'd been in charge, I would have made a much more impressive uh, thing than that. But the key thing in terms of the cosmic web is not really the sound... Oh, that's the spectrum of the microwave background. It's plotted in a slightly funny way, but you see that actually it's not just random noise. It actually has, it's a chord, kind of. There's a fundamental note and a couple of overtones that we can just about measure. So there is structure there. I think William Herschel would have liked that if he'd been around. To, it's not, as you've heard, it's not really very musical. You have to process it a lot to get any information out of this. There's a lot of noise on it, but there is structure, and we can use that to tell us what the early universe was doing. But I think more importantly, I'm going to skip a little bit, so I'm a bit worried about time. This is how the Big Bang is also how the cosmic web was formed. So I've got a very low-budget movie here, which is actually showing what happens to a small fluctuations in, in the density of the universe as time goes on. And this is a computer simulation where you basically take a, a smooth universe, jiggle material around to make fluctuations about one part in 100,000, and then what happens, you see, is if you make a little bit of the universe more dense than its surroundings, it starts to pull a little bit more on its surroundings than the other regions do. So it gets denser, and then it pulls even more, and it gets denser still. And you get what's called an instability. So if you start off with tiny fluctuations, one part in 100,000, pulling on each other by gravity, you get structure growing. So gravity, general relativity, Einstein's theory, produces an amplifier. So we don't just have a sound thing. We have a, a source of sound waves. We have to have a means of amplifying. And I think it's very noticeable how similar that structure is, which is just computed by calculating all the forces on all the particles is to the cosmic web that I showed you. So that's what we think the cosmic web actually was formed as. It began a sound. It began with the Big Bang. As the universe takes a slow process growing it, 14 billion years later, those sound waves have, have exerted enough gravity on themselves to eventually collapse into the large-scale structure that we see today. Okay? There are a lot of details in this which I won't go into, but this is... Uh, so I, I cheated a little bit because that, um, that simulation was just kind of run as a, a sort of uh, laptop version. But this is the real McCoy. This is one of the large-scale computer simulations that are done, uh, big groups uh, throughout Europe who do this. And this is the cosmic web as it is simulated using all the latest data um, from cosmology uh, and we're zooming in so 500 megaparsecs is about 15, uh, 1,500 million light years. And we're still not... This is all in a big computer. This is not the real universe. This is a, a computer simulation. But what they do is they simulate the Big Bang, calculate all the forces on all the particles, and try and look what the universe looked like. So you're still just... This is 60 megaparsecs. A megaparsec is about 3 million light years. So this is 20 million light years. You see these filaments. And, and we've still got to zoom in even further to see an individual galaxy. So these computations are very difficult to do. They need massive supercomputers. And I, I don't actually do this stuff. I'm a pencil and paper kind of guy. But I still think these things are incredibly impressive. Um, 
And they do, as far as we know, match the observations of the observed large-scale structure extremely well. And it all comes from the Big Bang. I think that's amazing. You know, sound waves made us. Galaxies formed, stars formed, we formed. And then we figured it all out. Maybe, if it's right, that is. So I'm going to fast forward, I think, because I'm running a little bit out of time. This will take a, a little bit of time. So I just wanted to, having told you that that's the sort of nutshell, we think we know how the cosmic web was formed, what it looks like, and it's all encompassed in this Big Bang theory that I told you about. But I think it's worth having a... It's just stepping back for this and saying, well, actually, do we really understand all of this, or are there some things which we don't understand? So... I think one of the things is that our Big Bang theory does work, but it's actually an extremely weird theory. And a lot of people are very, very happy that it works so well and we can make predictions and it seems to fit observations, but they're slightly worried by the fact that it's weird. And I just want to explain the weirdness a little bit. And uh, I'm not going to have time to go into too much uh, detail, but I'll just point out a few things. I've glossed over the difficulties so far. The difficulties are mainly in the fact that to get agreement with all the available cosmological information, observations, uh, we have to have a universe that's got strange things in it. Uh, and I'm, by strange things, I mean stuff uh, that's different from what we're familiar with. So most of the material in this room is made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, atomic material. But that atomic material can only make up a few percent of the universe, if this thing is right. So most of the stuff in the universe is in a form which we can't detect directly, other than inferring that it's there in order to make the, the Big Bang model work. So cosmologists are quite egotistical. They're quite happy to invent all these kind of weird things. So the cosmology must be right. So all these things must be there. The more hard-nosed people will say, actually, there's no evidence other than cosmology uh, that these things are there at all, and therefore, you know, it's just speculation. Well, we'll have to see. There'll have to be ways of detecting these things. One of the things we have to speculate about is dark matter. You've probably all heard of dark matter. Dark matter is dark. You can't see it directly. It's not luminous. It's not in the form of stars. And we think, uh, well, in fact, if the Big Bang model of the early universe is right, it can't be protons and neutrons and electrons. It has to be some other kind of particle. Particle physicists say, no problem. My theory's got hundreds of particles in it. It just has to be one of those, supersymmetric particle or whatever. But we have to detect it in order to be really convinced that those things are there. Basically, if the particles interact with light and radiation in the way that atoms do, then it doesn't fit. It has to be some kind of non-interacting particle that really only does gravity and nothing else. So there's dark matter. We know it's there uh, for a number of reasons. There's also even worse stuff called dark energy, uh, or as I like to call it, vacuum tension. It's not, as, it's not really as impressive as dark energy. Now, if you thought dark matter was bad, you're going to hate dark energy. Dark energy is... Um, well, the advantage of dark, dark matter might be an unfamiliar particle. Uh, but at least as far as gravity is concerned, it behaves like familiar particles in the sense that it pulls on stuff. Okay? So two bits of dark matter will attract each other by gravitational forces. Dark energy has the additional weird property of actually having uh, effectively exerting gravitational repulsion. So dark energy is a material that doesn't cluster by gravity and form the cosmic web, but it actually sits there and makes the universe expand more quickly. It, you know, we think the universe is actually not slowing down under its gravity, but accelerating. Uh, so this is basically is perfectly compatible with Einstein's theory. In fact, Einstein first predicted it, in a sense, in, in 1916. Um, but we have no understanding other than that it works, where it comes from or how to explain it. So dark energy is something which is a big puzzle. 
And uh, let me just go on to this. Uh, so the evidence comes from these very distant supernovae. Some of you have probably heard about these. Very distant stars seem to be moving away uh, in such a way that it suggests that the expansion rate is speeding up. So the universe is not slowing down under its own gravity, but seems to be speeding up. That's the standard cosmology. So the universe seems to be accelerating. So this is what our universe looks like. So you are here, 4% at most of the material in the universe. This is the whole energy budget of the universe, counting matter and energy as equivalent. You know, E equals mc squared, so matter and energy are equivalent. So 4% is stuff that we actually know about from laboratory experiments. 4%. That's like you just turned up and wrote your name on the exam. Uh, It's pathetic. Uh, Dark matter actually is largely responsible for growing the cosmic web because that's what's clumping together with the effect of its own gravity. But even that's only 22%. Even these days, that's a fail. And the only thing that gets an A grade is the dark energy. We know quite a lot about this. We know perhaps something about this. And we know absolutely nothing about this. Okay? So if anyone tells you that cosmology is now solved as a subject, you just show them a picture like that. There's 96% of the energy budget of the universe is unaccounted for. That's worse than the British economy. Not much worse, actually, but uh, you know, it's getting there. So there are a lot of puzzles. We don't know about this. So I'm going to end with a... This is an early view of cosmology, I think. This is one of my favorite paintings. It's The Flagellation of Christ by Piero della Francesca. Um, and uh, what's interesting about this, I think, is that you... I don't know what your impression is when you see this. People have written PhD theses about this painting. So... The thing that's strange is it it reminds me of cosmology. Because the subject matter of the painting, which, you know, is what we think we are in the universe, we think we're important to it, right? The flagellation of Christ. Well, that's actually happening in the background. Okay? So what we thought was the most important part of the universe, i.e. us, is, is kind of just a minor thing going on. And then there's this... The perspective is all wrong, Right? It's done with a linear perspective, but those figures are far too big on the right. You notice other curious things about this. You know, the light is coming from two different directions, the two different sides of the painting. The light is coming from this, the shadows here, and the shadows on the other way on this one. And what on earth is going on? This is full of secret messages and unknown things. If you don't study Renaissance painting, uh, you won't know anything about these. But I think these represent dark energy. They're paying no attention to anything else. They're all out of proportion to what they should be. They're much too big. And they're completely unexplained in the context of the real story. And the other things, who are these guys? What are these? Who is this guy with the back to What's he doing? So, in a sense, a work of art like this is very much like cosmology. It's satisfying. It's a very beautiful painting. And you understand it in a way. I didn't talk about the curvature of space which is one of the things we live in a universe where the space is curved or could be curved. It actually turns out we measure it to be flat, and there's a beautiful flat geometry in this painting too. But the thing is that once you've got into it and you sort of understand it in a very superficial way, you start questioning the things that have got you there. Like, what are these figures doing? What's it all about? Why is this in the background and so on? What's this strange illumination all about? And that's just the way science works. We've got an explanation of the cosmic web. We've got the Big Bang. We've got the sound. We can measure the sound of the Big Bang. It works as long as we've got all this dark energy and dark matter and all the rest of it. It fits. It's satisfying. But it just raises more questions. We just don't know what, why it's like that. So we have to go on and study even more. So I'll end with... Uh, this is my, my philosophy. of uh, This is a famous quotation from... Uh, a great American philosopher uh, <laughs> called Donald Rumsfeld, who was trying to explain something. I'm sure he was trying to explain something when he said this. But it's, it's what I think about one cosmology. And actually, there's a lot of things that we do know. I couldn't possibly say it as eloquently as he did. But there are a lot of things that do fit, and we think we are 
have got a pretty good view of what the picture is, but there are a lot of things that we don't know, and there are probably things that we're just completely wrong about. I mean, my personal view, for example, about dark energy is that it's actually not dark energy. It's something that we've misunderstood about the way the universe works. I think dark energy is a bit of a nonsense, actually. Um, don't quote me on that. Oh, it's going to be podcast, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> so, it's not a complete story, but that's a complete lecture anyway, so I'm going to finish there. Thank you very much.